Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network's Middle East Studies podcast. I'm Ruben Silverman, a researcher at Stockholm University's Institute for Turkish Studies, and with me today is Kaya Shaheen. Professor Shaheen is a professor in the Department of History at Indiana University, as well as the Executive Associate Dean of its Hamilton Luger School of Global and International Studies. His first book, Empire and Power in the Reign of Suleiman, Narrating the 16th Century Ottoman World, was published in 2013 by Cambridge University Press. It focused on the development of Ottoman imperial culture by looking at the life and work of a leading 16th century bureaucrat. Today, we will be talking about his new book, Peerless Among Princes, The Life and Times of Sultan Suleiman, which has just been published by Oxford University Press. Now, with this podcast, the first thing we like to always talk about is the author themselves. So if you can tell a little bit about your background, how you came to be interested in Ottoman history, especially during the 1500s, and why you've chosen now to look at this subject of Sultan Suleiman. Thank you, Ruben, uh, for the introduction and for the wonderful questions that you have prepared for our conversation today. So I grew up in Turkey. I'm from Turkey originally. So uh, growing up in Turkey in the 1980s, Ottoman history was everywhere. It was on television. It was part of the public discourse. It was part of popular culture. It was part of our, uh, you know, school uh, curricula. So in that regard, it's, you know, it's not surprising that someone who grew up in Turkey would be interested in Ottoman history. Uh, And I remember, you know, growing up and reading fairly conservative stories about, you know, Ottoman successes or the tragic downfall of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, So it was sort of cast in the sort of very apologetic, nationalist, conservative vein. And then uh, in college, uh, I realized that, you know, there were a number of significant problems with that particular narrative. Uh, But I was in college in the late 1990s. That was also a time when the founding ideology of the Turkish Republic, secular uh, Kemalist uh, ideology, was becoming weaker and weaker. It was being increasingly questioned. So in that sort of cultural and political moment, it made a lot of sense to me, as well as a number of of other people from my generation, to develop a new understanding of the Ottoman Empire beyond the established uh, conservative narrative, as well as beyond the characterization of the Ottoman Empire by the secular Kemalist, you know, Republican ideology, which basically portrayed the Ottoman Empire as a sort of dark ages. So this is kind of my entry point into the study of Ottoman history. I was initially interested in the transition from empire to republic. You know, how do we make sense of the implosion of a multi-ethnic, multi-religious empire? How does it lead to a nation state? I was much more interested in the transition question. Uh, Also, I have a BA in political science from Boazic University. So I very much had the historical understanding of a political scientist. I was just a bit short-sighted and I was focused on these sort of technical or instrumental questions, you know, transition from empire to republic, that sort of thing. 
So I decided to get an MA after finishing my BA, and I wanted to get an MA in history. I started out at Boston University, and then I switched over to Sabanji University. That was an important turning point uh, because I found two mentors there who really had a major influence on my under, my subsequent understanding of Ottoman history. One of them was Julia Jambakal, who was a recent PhD from Harvard who gave us a very thorough grounding in Islamic history, the way I had never been exposed to until uh, that point. And the second mentor was Metin Kunt, uh, who died uh, fairly recently, a year and a half or so ago, a specialist of early Ottoman history. So when I started working with them, the short-sightedness that came through my political science uh, training uh, went away. I started thinking about history as a more of a you know long durée uh, type of uh, narrative or flow, whatever you call it. So under Julia Jambakal and Metinkun, I became more and more interested uh, in the establishment, in the foundation of the Ottoman Empire uh, around the year 1300. And I wrote my MA thesis on one of the first historians, first native uh, vernacular historians of the Ottoman Empire under their guidance. And then from there, I went on to the University of Chicago to study with Cornel Fleischer, whom we lost uh, in late April of this year. Uh, and Cornel Fleischer being a specialist uh, of Ottoman history in the 16th century, I refocused my attention on the 16th century as a major turning point in Ottoman history. And then in graduate school, I increasingly realized that the 16th century is a global moment of transition to which the Ottomans contributed significantly. So I started thinking about the Ottomans more and more in these global and comparative terms. So that's roughly the story of where I ended up. Well, but that raises the question, though, of why look at Sultan Suleiman? And I was surprised, actually, I, when I Googled around a little bit. I, did, I would have assumed there would have been a number of biographies of him, just knowing about him as I do. But there are not particularly that many. And so maybe you could talk a little bit about why you chose to write about him and why people should know about him, why there should be an interest. Yeah, and I I completely agree with you. There is a major gap. Uh, let me think of other historical figures. Uh, let's think the 16th century, Henry VIII, Thomas Cromwell, you know, Francis I, uh, Charles V. All of them have a number of biographies that have been written, you know, over several centuries. In the case of Suleiman. Uh, when we think about the biographies of Suleiman in English, number one, there is the issue of sources. When we look at the Suleiman biographies written in English, they are either you know popular narratives that are based on other popular narratives, or the more scholarly ones uh, are based on European sources, on Italian and French sources. Uh, there weren't that many you know specialists of the Ottoman Empire uh, speaking or. You know, uh, with, a, with, a novel, with a reading knowledge of Ottoman Turkish, uh, as well as Arabic and Persian in the U.S. academia, this is something that started happening uh, post-1945 and basically, I mean, more importantly in the 1970s and 1980s as part of the development and transformation of area studies. So there was kind of a gap of scholarship and expertise that 
sort of prevented, you know, uh, the composition of biographies of Suleiman in English. But beyond that, I also think there's a sort of, uh, you know, political or cultural uh, barrier uh, in play, which is roughly, you know, uh, the, the, the sort of the Orientalist or Eurocentric or Western centric understanding of world history, according to which certain figures, certain European figures, certain white male figures, whatever you call it, played very important roles, while others played, you know, uh, lesser roles or no roles at all. So the absence of a biography of Suleiman or the absence of, uh, you know, let's say a biography of the founder of the Safavid dynasty, uh, Shah Ismail in English, uh, these are also related to these kinds of, you know, cultural and political uh, prejudices. Uh, in my biography of Suleiman, I wanted to push against those kinds of prejudices. I wanted to push against the Eurocentric uh, account of world history. Uh, but at the same time, while criticizing you know, the Eurocentric approaches, I also wanted to push back against the conservative Turkish nationalist or Islamist understanding of history, uh, according to whose narratives Suleiman is, you know, one of the most accomplished figures uh, in world history. He had, he had major achievements. He's a major military leader. He's the builder of an empire, all of those kinds of, you know, apologetic or uh, nationalist, uh, essentialist understanding. So uh, while Criticizing the absence of a scholarly treatment of Suleiman in English, I also always am mindful that, you know, there is another problem on the other side as well, on the side of, you know, uh, Ottoman and Ottoman history and Ottoman history writing in, in Turkish in particular. Well, I mean, that's interesting. I, I would say one thing I liked about the book in particular was that you take... Uh, you, you, you situate Suleiman in particular places. So you're giving this history of him, his interactions with, with Europe, with, uh, with the Safavids, but you're talking about him in particular locations. So you emphasize how the specific conditions and institutions he interacted with shaped him. And um, early on, especially, you talk about some of the cities and the ceremonies that he was involved in as a young man. And so I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about that, especially you look at Trabazon and Jaffa, where he started, he, where he lived when he was young. How did these particular places shape him? The impact of space and place, this is something, this is a theme that dictated itself as I was writing the biography and as, as I was having conversations with my wife uh, about you know, which parts of Suleiman's life should be emphasized more? How can we create a narrative that is scholarly, but that also kind of conveys a not relatable, perhaps a more understandable, kind of more accessible, uh, you know, f- version of Suleiman's life? That's the point where the importance of space and place emerged. Also, we don't have a lot of information about Suleiman's childhood. And in or, while trying to make up for the gap of information, I came up with the idea that, you know, I could focus on the city of Trabzon, the city of his childhood. We have a variety of sources about Trabzon's economy and Trabzon's demographic structure, Trabzon's, uh, you know, uh, 
built environment. So I thought I would make up for the lack of information in Ottoman historical sources by basically focusing on those kinds of, you know, economic and demographic uh, data. And as a result, I started realizing more and more that, you know, I should, I should, so something that I somewhat chanced upon became a much more, uh, much more important part of my approach to Suleiman's life as something that was shaped by Ottoman institutions and by Ottoman culture, but, but also by the places in which he lived. Trabzon is interesting. He was born in Trabzon in 1494 or 1495. He was the son of another prince, so he had a very privileged uh, upbringing. He was given a very thorough education, including a poetry education. He was instructed in you know, reading and writing poetry. He received martial training in Trabzon. Uh, he was introduced to the hunt, which was a major sort of you know, pastime as well as you know, almost like an identity marker for these different uh, male dynastic cultures across Eurasia. He was socialized within Ottoman culture, within Ottoman hierarchy. So Trabzon was basically the place where he was molded into an Ottoman prince, but Trabzon's architecture and nature also had, you know, a number of impacts on him. Uh, Trabzon had been the capital of a small Greek Orthodox empire before it was taken over by the Ottomans. So serving in an old imperial capital in which the, the signs of the previous dynasty were very much visible in the buildings, in the ornaments across the city, in you know uh, inscriptions uh, on the front of the buildings. So that must have given him a specific sense of history, you know, of the Ottomans replacing the local Greek Orthodox dynasties, uh, living in an old imperial center. Uh, I think that was a, that was an important element in the way he and his father uh, imagined themselves. But at the same time, Trabzon existed in a place that was very much isolated geographically. It was on the uh, northeastern border of the Ottoman uh, realm at the time when Suleiman was born. And it was surrounded by mountains. It was very difficult to access Trabzon either from the sea, uh, even though it's a coastal city, there are no natural ports nearby. So it was challenging to access Trabzon from the sea or from the land. You would have to go across mountains and very difficult terrain. It was a place that was exposed to contagious diseases. Resources were scarce, and there was a major uprising organized by the members of the Safavid family in the surrounding regions. So I also think, you know, growing up in that kind of environment also created a sense of isolation, a sort of, you know, tension, but also almost a kind of resolution on the part of his father and Suleiman to fight against enormous odds because they felt they felt very lonely, but at the same time, that sense of loneliness somewhat turned into a sense of mission, whereby, I mean, I know this more uh, through Suleiman's father, whereby he felt 
he had been wronged and he felt he deserved to inherit the throne uh, rather than being isolated in a you know small corner of the empire. So that sort of geographical isolation also contributed something uh, to the to the mentality of Suleiman and his father. And then after his father Selim became Sultan in 1512, uh, Suleiman was transferred to Manisa. Oh, he, he was first transferred to Kaffa, uh, and then he was eventually relocated to Manisa. He he stayed in Kaffa for a very short time. Uh, we don't have a lot of sources about that, but we know at the very least that he became the head of his own household. So uh, leaving Trabzon and going to Kaffa with the rank of uh, district governor was a major transition in Suleiman's life. Uh, it and it coincided with his transition into puberty. So it was kind of a moment of, you know, personal as well as political maturation. And then in 1512, Suleiman was transferred to Manisa in uh, Western Anatolia. And from 1512 to 1520, he was the district governor there. We don't have a lot of sources about, from Kaffa, but we have a significant amount of sources from his time in Manisa from 1512 to 1520. So this was a time then, Suleiman received a, a different kind of education, a sort of, you know, hands-on everyday education in the management of an Ottoman district, the collection of taxes, the administration of justice. He also became the head of a very large household with, you know, military men, cooks, gatekeepers. He started living in a larger house. This is also the time when he started having sexual intercourse with concubines. He started having children. And finally, when his father, Selim, was away on campaigns, Suleiman acted as a stand-in by relocating to the city of Edirne, uh, on, close to the western frontiers of the Ottoman Empire, and kind of acting as a sort of you know replacement for his father, coordinating the working of the Ottoman administration while uh, his father Selim was on campaign. So the period from 1512 to 1520 was a time when he became a sort of a sultan in waiting. Selim didn't have any other uh, sons as a result of which Suleiman looked like the heir apparent. And this is also the t- this was also the time when he started uh, getting a lot of specific uh, knowledge in the management of an empire. And finally, he himself became a father, and he basically started siring what would be the next generation of the of the Ottoman dynasty. So when we look at you know the period for, between his birth and his coming to the throne in fifteen twenty. Uh, this is this is roughly the, the the story that we see. Well, you mentioned his father, and his father. I mean, Salim is a major figure in Ottoman history in his own right. So when he dies, he dies rather earlier than one might have expected. So when he dies and Suleiman comes to the throne, what sort of things has Salim set in motion that Suleiman is now somewhat unexpectedly having to deal with? What accomplishments has Salim done? What situation is he uh, leaving for his son? There are a number of things on the most personal level, and I tried not to psychologize the characters in the book because, you know, I mean, we, we simply don't have enough information to produce these detailed individual treatments of them. Uh, but I think we we can still say that Selim's 
one of the biggest impacts Selim had on Suleiman was that he was an overbearing father. He was a rash, impetuous character. And very early on, during his tenure as district governor, Selim, in Trabzon, uh, he basically started organizing campaigns against the Safavid supporters in the vicinity, against the small uh, Georgian uh, entities to the east of Trabzon. So Selim was a sort of larger-than-life action man who could be very sort of harsh, indeed violent with people around him. And he was filled with a sense of destiny that he was destined to become sultan and that his father and his brothers were useless, that sort of thing. So I think Selim had a huge impact on Suleiman's mentality and his personality as a sort of, you know, highly dramatic figure who was constantly talking either about military exploits or his sense of injustice, all of that. So I think Suleiman, when we look at his personal relationships uh, throughout his life, and I know we will come back to this question later in our conversation, he very much looks like someone who very insistently sought close personal relationships. This is not something that you did in that sort of elite male dynastic culture. But it seems that Selim marked Suleiman uh, very early on, and he basically, you know, as the sort of distant, harsh father figure, basically uh, pushed his son or created in his son the need to seek refuge in different kinds of personal relationships, in intimate uh, connections. Uh, Beyond the psychological Selim, uh, even though he remained on the throne for eight years, uh, he had a he had an overwhelming reputation as a military re- leader. First of all, he rebelled against his own father, Bayezid II. He def- he came to the throne. He exterminated his brothers and their forces, and then he defeated the Safavids, and then he defeated the Mamluks of Egypt. He conquered parts of eastern Anatolia, Syria, and Egypt. He basically, in, in, a scope, in the scope of eight years, Selim doubled the empire's territory and the empire's population, and he established this, this huge reputation as you know, the most successful military figure of the period, if not the entire Ottoman history. So this is also the sort of, you know, reputation and image that Suleiman had to deal with. So when Selim died in 1520, Suleiman came to the throne. But I mean, even though he had been a stand-in for his father, he was relatively unknown. And his, his capabilities as leader, as military leader, or as political leader were untested. So Suleiman's major challenge coming from the direction of his father, first of all, was to create his own reputation. The second challenge was this. Uh, So even though Selim very quickly conquered large territories uh, in the Middle East, the Ottoman administration in those areas had not been 
institutionalized enough by the time Suleiman came to the throne. So when we look at some of the first uh, challenges that Suleiman faced, one of them, actually the first one of them, was a major rebellion in Syria. The Ottomans, uh, Selim, uh, after taking these areas, he had installed some of the figures from the previous regime who had changed sides and, you know, who had allied with the Ottomans. But, you know, this the, the, this kind of an alliance created a vulnerability and that vulnerability immediately showed itself as soon as Suleiman came to the throne. There were a number of uh, rebellions in Egypt uh, in the later years as well. So another challenge Suleiman had was basically to establish and anchor Ottoman rule in the areas that had been taken uh, by his father. Also, finally, uh, another challenge or another sort of major, I don't want to call it burden, uh, but another major issue that was left from Selim to Suleiman was the increasing emphasis on Sunni Islam as a marker of Ottoman imperial identity. In his struggle against the Safavids, which goes back to the last years of the 14th century or the early years of the 16th century, Selim had already begun talking about you know, the Ottomans as the defenders of Sunnism against the Safavid dynasty. So this politicization of uh, Sunni Islam as a major uh, identifier of, uh, you know, of Ottoman imperial culture was another legacy that was left from Selim to Suleiman, but very much like the other legacies of Selim, it was left kind of as a project that Suleiman had to complete later. So these are the different kinds of uh, challenges and legacies that were uh, that were left to Suleiman when his father died. Uh, as you said, uh, quite quite surprisingly, uh, he. He, he was fairly young and, you know, nobody was expecting him to die at this age. So Suleiman suddenly uh, in September 1520 found himself in the position of having to tackle with all of these complicated legacies. Well, so in addition to those legacies, then, if those are some of the things he's reacting to or having to deal with, what of some of the things that he, I suppose we can sort of say, chooses to do? So he becomes involved in campaigns in Hungary and against the island of Rhodes. So uh, I'm wondering how you see these early campaigns he engages in as his attempts to shape his own image. And how does that image start to develop? Especially one thing you emphasize is the way in which he and his grand vizier Ibrahim together work to shape his image in the early years of his reign. So if you could talk about that, that would be great. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so, in order to distinguish himself from his father, and as I mentioned earlier, I mean, I think that was a political necessity, but also a kind of personal necessity for Suleiman. My sense is that he really did not like his father very much. Uh, Selim wasn't a very likable person uh, in any case. So, soon after he came to the throne, even before these military campaigns that you just mentioned, uh, Suleiman engaged in a number of actions in order to distinguish himself from his father. One of the first things he did was to allow a number of families that were exiled from Cairo to Istanbul uh, by his father uh, to go back to Cairo. He also started paying restitutions to merchants 
whose properties had been taken away on the orders of Selim. These are people who did uh, who traveled between the Safavid and the Ottoman territories and who engaged in commercial activity. And in order to try and establish a kind of blockade against the Safavids, uh, Selim basically decided to punish these merchants. So Suleiman, when we look at his first actions on the throne and the first kinds of official documents that were produced uh, in his first months as sultan, he emphasizes his justice. He positions himself as a just sultan to the point of correcting what everybody knew to be his father's overreactions or his father's mistakes. The campaigns against Hungary and against Rhodes are, again, you know, uh, part of this sort of dual strategy in Suleiman's mind to establish his own reputation as well as, you know, get out from under the shadow of his father. So Selim didn't organize any campaigns on the European front, while Suleiman's first campaign is against Hungary. That's very meaningful. I mean, the Hungarians and the Ottomans were the major competitors uh, over the control of Central and Eastern Europe uh, since the you know first decades of the uh, 15th century. But the fact that Suleiman chose to organize a major campaign against Hungary uh, on the basis of fairly you know minor details, you know the Hungarians disrespecting the Ottomans or an Ottoman envoy, uh, that sort of thing, uh, that basically shows that Suleiman was trying to establish a reputation for himself as a Muslim ruler fighting against the European Christians. Uh, the same goes for the campaign of Rhodes as well. Uh, Suleiman's first campaign ends up with the capture of uh, the the city and fortress of Belgrade, and his second campaign ends up with the capture of the islands of Ro- island of Rhodes uh, and the exile of the Knights Hospitaller who were using Rhodes as a sort of base. So Belgrade and Rhodes had been targeted before in the mid and late 15th century by Mehmed II, the conqueror of Constantinople. So by taking these two major fortified areas uh, that the famous conqueror of Constantinople himself had been unable to take was an added point of pride for Suleiman. But to summarize, so this is what he's trying to do in the first two, three years of his time on the throne to convey the image of a just sultan and also to establish a martial reputation as a sultan who fights against European Christians. And then... In the in 1524, 1525, as you mentioned, there's a sudden jump uh, in in these ideological and political speculations, and Suleiman's friend and grand vizier Ibrahim uh, plays an important role uh, in that transition. So, during the during his first years on the throne, Suleiman basically uses the high administrators that he inherits from his father. I mean, it would have been impossible for him to organize those major military campaigns without the support of those upper administrators. But then in 1523, Suleiman feels confident enough to replace the administrators he inherited from his father with members of his own 
household. So I would say that the reputation building, which we just discussed, also helped him in that regard, because without the kind of martial reputation that he establishes in the previous years, it would have been difficult for him to instigate such a major overhaul of the top levels of the Ottoman administration. But he's able to do that. And then he promotes the uh, head of his inner chamber, Ibrahim, someone that he has a very close relationship with, uh, to the position of Grand Vizier. And then uh, he marries Ibrahim with one of his nieces, and then he sends Ibrahim uh, to Egypt in order to inspect the finances of the this major province and the uh the political situation there again this is part of that campaign of you know uh trying to anchor ottoman administration in the areas that were that were captured by uh suleiman's father but on at the end of his stay in egypt ibrahim with the help of a of a secretary writes this major document that i discuss in some detail in the book. So what we see after the initial period of reputation building is a reimagining of Suleiman's image and Suleiman's mission in world historical terms. This is something that is quite surprising, quite novel, quite speculative, quite experimental, whatever you call it. And again, I talk at some length about this. So this is not the first time when the Ottomans uh, think of themselves as you know, actors in a world historical or in an eschatological environment, but this is the most detailed, the most capacious you know, narrative that we see uh, up until that point in, in the history of the Ottoman Empire. So Suleiman and Ibrahim, on the basis of Suleiman's initial military and political successes, but also influenced by the apocalyptic and messianic narratives of the time, which are very widespread across Eurasia. They basically come up with the idea that beyond being a just sultan and beyond, you know, fighting against European Christians, Suleiman actually has another role to play, which is to act as a world emperor, as an instigator of universal monarchy, and as someone who is going to unify East and West, Islam and Christianity under a single mantle. This is one of the most sort of surprising, most intriguing aspects of of the reign of Suleiman, the emergence of this uh, sort of overarching world historical claim that the Ottoman ruler uh, basically, is going to unify the world and usher the world into an age of bliss before the coming of the end time. So this is this is sort of the, the major switch that Suleiman and Ibrahim uh, introduce in in Ottoman imperial ideology around 1525. So then, over the next four uh, four decades of rule, he, there's on and off fighting with the Habsburgs in Europe, with the Safavids. In Iran, this fighting, how does this vision fit into it? Maybe we can think about it that way. Does this expansive vision help us understand what's going on in these different conflicts? Or 
does the nature of the conflict uh, change over time? What kind of dis- what kind of similarities and differences can we draw between these campaigns that he's conducting over the course of his reign, given these ambitions that he's starting out his reign with? Yeah, I mean that's that's that that's I think is one of the better ways of looking at what happens uh, after fifteen twenty five. This vision leads to a kind of imperial grand strategy, which is really interesting in itself. I mean, there are always logistical considerations. There are always cultural issues, you know, cultural competition, economic rivalry. All of those things are always part of the picture. But what we see from 1525 to 1536, uh, for that decade, Suleiman and Ibrahim organized these ambitious military campaigns against the Habsburgs and against the Safavids. And the message is very open. They are organizing these campaigns in order to eradicate the enemy, in order to take, to take the enemy down, be it the Safavid Shah or, or the Holy Roman Emperor. And the idea is to establish the Ottoman Sultan is the one, as the one true emperor on earth. So there's a time between... 1525, 1526, and 1536, during which these kinds of ideological considerations take primacy over logistical considerations. But then by 1536, after a number of uh, major campaigns in Europe and after a very long and very costly campaign in the East against the Safavids, Suleiman and Ibrahim basically realized that they have reached a stalemate. That in a sense, the sort of ambitious imperial ideological agenda that they devise uh, around 1525 uh, is rather impossible to realize. That's another major uh, sort of turning point in the life of Suleiman in his political career. Uh, Ibrahim is executed on Suleiman's orders in 1536. There's a lot of speculation around it, but in my mind, that's an that's that's a decision that signifies the realization that the that ambitious political agenda is not tenable anymore. It's impossible to realize. So what Suleiman ends up with uh, by you know the middle of 1536 is a kind of stalemate on both fronts, rather than a universal empire. And in a sense, he spends the rest of his reign, 30 years in order to try and shore up the Ottoman position on both fronts rather than trying to uh, defeat the Safavids. I mean, he, he does organize a number of campaigns against the Habsburgs and against the Safavids, but we see that the earlier ideological message that this campaign is meant, you know, to uh, destroy the enemy and instore, the, re- establish the Ottoman Sultan as the sole emperor on earth, that kind of an emphasis basically goes into the background. In terms of similarity, uh, when we look at the Ottoman struggle with the Habsburgs and the Safavids, there are a number of structural similarities. Uh, there are logistical issues. The Ottoman Empire is a land-based early modern uh, empire that is based that, that that relies on human and animal labor. Any kind of you know campaign against enemies uh, whose uh, you know realm is situated 
many, many hundreds of miles away from Istanbul, uh, is a major logistical challenge in itself. So the logistical challenges of organizing campaigns in Europe and in the Safavid realms are fairly similar and fairly comparable. Of course, uh, in the East, in the uh, in the Safavid case, the, ter- the terrain is even rougher and resources are more scarce than they are on the European front. So organizing campaigns in the East is a bit more challenging than the Ottomans. Uh, in terms of ideological and cultural competition, again, there are similar elements. The ideological competition with the Habsburgs over who has the uh, right to use the title of emperor, uh, the competition with the Safavids over you know whether Sunni Islam or the Shi- or Shiite Islam is the best, who has the right to claim leadership over the Muslim community. So those kinds of things structurally are similar, uh, but uh, the contents are fairly different. Uh, For instance, the Ottomans and the Safavids share a sort of common culture, the Perso-Arabic Belletra culture. Uh, So their conversations, uh, when we look at the diplomatic correspondence, for instance, I mean, there's more of a sense of uh, cultural familiarity when the Ottomans are talking to the Safavids uh, vis-a-vis the Ottoman conversation uh, with the Habsburgs. Uh, but still, I mean, like what we see is like the Ottomans are stuck in between two rival empires, and these empires basically represent different religions, different cultural identities, different models of governance, different economic zones compared to the Ottomans. And in the sort of imperial dynastic uh, mentality uh, of the time, uh, competition with others over resources as well as over ideological claims is a constant. Uh, the notion of peace is there, uh, but a state of war is uh, much more natural uh, for all of these members of these different dynastic cultures. So uh, there's a kind of uh, level of competition and enmity from which the Ottomans are unable to uh, extricate themselves. Hmm. Well, you know, that's, that's interesting. Um, I, you know, so earlier, well, you know, earlier I said that I was surprised that there wasn't more written about Suleiman. And one reason I thought that is because I lived in Turkey during the early 2010s, which was the height of a uh, Mutashem Yuzil, this show, The Magnificent Century, which presented Suleiman and his family. And some of the, I guess, the political critique of the show was that it didn't focus enough on what we've been talking about, which is the, uh, the, 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 fight, the dynastic battles, the fighting, the war. And instead, it focused on his personal relationships. And um, at the same time, what I get from your book is that the personal relationships are very important in affecting policies and affecting the choices Suleiman makes. So I'm hoping we can talk about that a little bit. Talk about Suleiman and uh, Huram and his son Jahangir and his grand viziers. We talked about Ibrahim, but maybe Rustem too. And talk about, yeah, how these, how do you see these family relationships informing his policies and affecting his reign? Yeah. Uh, again, that's that, that that that's a very important question in the case of Suleiman, and I don't think it is a coincidence that we are talking about these uh, personal relationships of Suleiman because 
there's a significant amount of evidence in the historical record about these uh, about these different people around Suleiman. Uh, we don't have something comparable for his father, for instance. I mean, which tells you something. I mean, in the case of Suleiman, a number of different figures basically become part of the historical record. They show initiative. Uh, they come. They establish a close relationship with Suleiman. So. I mean, it, we talked about this a little bit. I really think that Suleiman came out of his childhood as someone yearning for close relationships. Uh, so, I mean, a lot of other people, a lot of other princes did the same. But, I mean, Suleiman had a very close relationship with his mother. And he kept her very close to him. He supported uh, her charitable construction projects. Similarly, he was very close to his uh, first tutor, a man named Hayreddin. Even though Hayreddin was not the best scholarly mind of the time, Suleiman kept him very close until uh, Hayreddin died in the early 1540s. So he was someone who sought those kinds of close relationships. And again, his relationship with Hurem, as you know, in the Ottoman uh, system of dynastic reproduction, especially after the mid-15th century, the Ottoman princes were supposed to have sexual intercourse with concubines, with slave women. Uh, children born to those women were legally free Muslims, and uh, the, the sons born to the concubines were eligible for the throne. But after having a son with a concubine, the Ottoman princes moved on to the to a next concubine. I see this as a as a very crude Ottoman understanding of, you know, natural selection, they were probably, you know, trying to widen the gene pool or something like that. That may be the reason why uh, they were moving from one concubine to another. Uh, but I mean, so and Suleiman started out his sexual life in this particular way. But then after becoming sultan, he met uh, Hureb, another slave woman and a concubine. We don't know how they developed a close relationship, but we know that they did. Uh, and basically, Suleiman spent the rest of his life uh, loyal to this, uh, you know, one woman who was brought to the Ottoman Empire as a slave. Uh, she was manumitted eventually, and Suleiman married her. And again, this is something that the Ottoman sultans did not do. They would not uh, they would not marry the concubines, the slave women. But Suleiman did that, and he had a number of uh, children uh, from her. And again, this is, this, is, this is not something that was done. So he basically tried to establish a kind of you know, nuclear family and a kind of intimate family life in the midst of a dynastic culture that didn't have room for that sort of thing. Uh, his relationship with Ibrahim, again, it's it's very indicative of the ways in which, you know, Suleiman really cherished individuals who were great conversationalists, who had a particular spark. Uh, the, the, his relationship with his son Jihangir was also uh, very similar to that. Jihangir had a birth defect, so he was not sent out to the provinces to serve as district governor. So he basically stayed stayed on as a kind of you know uh, friend and companion of Suleiman. And Jihangir was a even though he died at a young age, he was already a very accomplished poet. He was a very witty conversationalist. So Suleiman sought the company of people like them. Uh, the 
religious scholar Ebusud, the accomplished poet Baki, when we look at people around him, he always looked for people in whom he could confide, with whom he could have, you know, a meaningful relationship. And I see this as, you know, something that stems from that difficult uh, childhood that he had. Uh but his his personal his his relationship with members of of his family had a couple of uh, you know other consequences. Uh, first of all, he could not prevent his sons, even though they were, uh, except one of them, uh, the ones who grew into adulthood were uh, you know f- from the same mother. But he could not prevent them uh, from entering into a succession struggle. Uh, and the sort of the nuclear family he established uh, basically led to a lot of sorrow for him. He had to see, actually, he had to, you know, acquiesce to the demise, to the execution of a number of his sons and his his grandchildren uh, in the last decades of his life. Uh, From a personal perspective, while he empowered women and family members, he also led to the emergence of a kind of... let me rephrase this. Uh, Suleiman was very keen on meritocracy, on bureaucratic merit, the rule of the law, and that sort of thing. But at the same time, uh, he also led to a further personalization of Ottoman politics, whereby uh, members of the Sultan's household and people close to him uh, started playing uh, increasingly larger roles in the administration of the Ottoman Empire. So there's sort of tension in there as well. On the one hand, you know, meritocracy, but on the other hand, uh, patronage, the sultan's own family, the palace household became uh, important actors in Ottoman politics, which introduced uh, a sort of uh, a sort of which established a base for ongoing tensions in the coming centuries. Hmm. Well, I guess the last big question I want to ask you about Suleiman is about his legacy. Um, We can maybe think about this in some different areas, uh, architecturally, legally. Uh, In terms of literature, you've mentioned some of the poets he was close with. Was he successful in leaving a legacy? Uh, Was it the one he intended? And have we remembered him for the things he hoped to be remembered for? So... From very early on, as we discussed, uh, Suleiman was very keen on establishing a reputation, you know, trying to distinguish himself from his father, uh, trying to establish an image that would take him beyond the uh, beyond the image that he had when he became sultan, you know, as, as a relatively unexperienced prince. But this image-making became particularly intense and particularly conscious, almost engineered in the 1530s, 1550s, sorry, 1540s, 50s, and 60s. So image, the beginning of a new kind of image making uh, somewhat coincides with the realization that that ambitious world historical project of universal empire was not going to pan out. Uh, So uh, Suleiman in the 1540s in particular basically started developing a new kind of legacy in a number of ways. First one, as you said, is architectural. Uh, the old territories of the Ottoman Empire are filled 
with signs of the charity of Ottoman sultans and Ottoman administrators, but one of the most visible ones is basically belongs to Suleiman. We have the major Suleimania mosque complex in Istanbul. Uh, we have uh, you know major charitable projects in Damascus, in Mecca and Medina. Suleiman's wife Hurem uh, ha- had a major charitable complex in Jerusalem. Another one in Istanbul to her name. Suleiman's daughter Mihrima basically became a uh, very important architectural patron. So architecture was uh, a major instrument through which uh, Suleiman tried to leave behind a legacy. And I would say he's very successful in the sense that even to this day, the Suleimania Mosque is one of the most visible and most visited and most obvious landmarks in the in the city of Istanbul. Uh, again, in terms of law, in terms of uh, you know meritocracy, Suleiman was fairly successful in presiding over a transition of the Ottoman administrative system from a sort of embryonic bureaucracy to a sort of more regular, wider uh, sort of bureaucracy with a with a new agenda. So, uh, and similarly, uh, Suleiman presided over the formulation and circulation of dynastic law codes that were meant to coexist with the Sharia. And pretty much every sultan did that, but Suleiman paid particular attention to that. And he also was careful in presenting himself as a protector of the law and peace and order. So again, I mean, this is a legacy that survived well. As you know, uh, in Turkish-speaking countries, uh, he's known as Kanuni, the lawgiver, while he's known as Suleiman the Magnificent in Europe. So his legacy as a legislator is is very much alive as well. Uh, literature, his his literary legacy is a little bit mixed. Suleiman saw himself, uh, rather, he saw poetry as one of the central activities of his life, and I I myself think that he is one of the most accomplished poets of the Ottoman tradition. His poetry is not necessarily the most sophisticated in terms of uh, vocabulary, but it's the one that is probably the most striking. His use of the vernacular together with the more learned tropes of the Arabo-Persian tradition is, is very, very inventive. It's very innovative. So he was indeed one of the most prominent poets of the Ottoman tradition, but Again, having lived in Turkey, you are already aware of this. With the change of the alphabet and with the language reforms of the 20th century, Suleiman's poetic language became almost completely inaccessible to people uh, who live in Turkey today. Uh, They would need a, first of all, they would need to have it transcribed into Latin characters, and then they would uh, need a dictionary. uh, And more, probably, in order to be able to understand that. So, literature... I would say, I mean, his his reputation as a poet was a very cherished, uh, you know, uh, thing for Suleiman. But unfortunately, it's one of the ones that that didn't survive the cultural and political transformations of the centuries. But the other reputations are uh, very much 
very much alive. So in that regard, I think uh, Suleiman's reputation building campaign of the 1540s, 1550s, 1560s produced the intended result. Even more so because when we look at the last decade of his life, uh, Suleiman's reputation or Suleiman's image had suffered a lot. Uh, you know, he had to order the execution of two of his sons and many grandchildren. He was very sick. He was not going on campaign. Uh, a lot of people, even in the Ottoman administration, basically started feeling uh, the economic strains and the administrative tensions of a large land-based empire. So Suleiman's last decade on the throne was a time of reflection and was a time of pessimism almost among significant sections of the Ottoman society. Uh, We see this in particular uh, in the uh, reports of the ambassadors from Istanbul. Uh, So when we look at where his image was in the last decade of his life, I would say that Suleiman's reputation building campaign has been particularly successful in sort of superseding the view of an old sultan uh, who had made horrible decisions and who didn't have much of a grip on the empire anymore. When we look at Suleiman's image today, that 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 picture is completely uh, erased. So in that regard, I would say uh, his reputation campaign was indeed very successful. Uh, but this is also the reason why we have to be constantly critical of the images of that of Suleiman that we have today, because rather than reflecting the objective truth, they reflect Suleiman's own attempts at leaving behind a cleaned out, well processed as my wife calls it, a curated legacy of him. And a lot of people espouse it too quickly, especially conservative uh, or nationalist, you know, people, politicians, as well as historians in Turkey. We have to be mindful of the fact that this was an image that was created uh, by, you know, Suleiman and people around him nearly 500 years ago. That's interesting, and I think it's a good place to stop this discussion of Suleiman. Uh, the, the last thing I want to ask, the, the last thing I always like to ask is what you're working on now, how this project fits into your more general academic interests, and where you see yourself going from here. Are you uh, focused more on uh, administrative work at the moment, or do you have particular projects also going on? Uh there's a project, I mean, this this was going to be uh, my new book, but when I was asked to write the biography of Suleiman, I thought, you know, uh, I felt that, you know, the, there should be a scholarly biography of Suleiman in English. So I delayed my, my new book, uh, writing my new book. Uh, I had been working for some time on... Ottoman imperial ceremonies in the 15th and 16th centuries. This is something that came out of uh, my dissertation research and my first book. As you noted in my first book, I talk about bureaucratization and empire building historiography. And again, in the Suleiman biography, I talk about Suleiman, the people around him, the elites. 
for some time I have been wanting to do something about the Ottoman political community uh, and political participation, the contestation of political ideas, that sort of thing. And I decided to work on Ottoman public ceremonies in the 15th and 16th centuries in order to look at the ways in which the political center communicated with other communities and how other communities express themselves in public uh, environments. I wrote two articles about that. I published one of them in 2018 in the American Historical Review, and I published another one in History and Theory in, uh, I think, 2019 or 2020. Uh, So this is the next project. I want to turn it into a book, and I want to look at Number one, have Ottoman ceremonies and the Ottoman ceremonial culture developed from 1300 to 1500? What were the cultural influences uh, and what were the objectives behind the emergence of these uh, public ceremonies? And then I want to look at popular participation, transformation of the ceremonies, uh, that sort of thing. I, I want to focus particularly on the circumcision of Ottoman princes and the accompanying ceremonies. The Ottomans were the only uh, early modern Islamic dynasty to regularly celebrate uh, the circumcision of Ottoman princes. This was a major dynastic rite of passage, and these took the form of major celebrations across, you know, from a few to several weeks. Uh, pretty much, you know, every single community or group in the capital city attending, bringing gifts, receiving gifts from the sultan. So these were microcosms of the Ottoman political community in a way. And I want to write a sort of coherent narrative from 1450 to 1580, roughly, in order to look at the emergence of these ceremonies, as well as the rise and evolution of the Ottoman political society. I, it's a little related to that, but I have also been working on an edited volume on Ottoman political thought. Uh, a, unlike previous studies, uh, my co-editor and I solicited participations. Uh, we solicited contributions from uh, a lot of scholars to emphasize political thought beyond the uh, Ottoman political center. What was, what was the political thought or how did the Jewish community, for instance, imagine itself uh, with regard to the Ottoman political center? Uh, Armenian feminism, which was a major uh, cultural dynamic in the second half of the 19th century, uh, or you know, members of religious confraternities in the countryside, how did they imagine themselves as belonging to the Ottoman political order? So we have 15 or so articles. Uh, this That book is going to come out with Oxford University Press uh, next year. And I think that would be a nice contribution to the way in which we have been talking about Ottoman political thought. So to summarize, after working on the elites, I am kind of trying to get out a little bit and look at the other parts of the the political conversation. And again, in everything I do, I want to keep that comparative uh, sort of global early modern emphasis in order to restore the place of the Ottomans in world history, as well as, you know, make the Ottomans more legible uh, for people from other fields working on other areas. Because I, I really think, and I think I established by now that I'm not a Turkish nationalist or I don't have a very conservative understanding of Ottoman history, but, you know, I really think that 
our not only our understanding of world history, but our understanding of the of global politics and global cultures today is going to benefit from the incorporation of these non-European and non-Western actors in the ways in which we understand uh, world history. So that's that's a constant concern of mine, and that I always try to contribute to that conversation in, in everything I do. Well, I mean, I think that, that was certainly accomplished in this book. We, and we, we've talked about many aspects of it in this podcast today, but there's a lot we didn't cover. And even some of the things you say your next book will be about, such as circumcision ceremonies, things like this, they're discussed in this book. And I, I, I very much enjoyed reading about them, learned a great deal from them. So I hope people listening will go find this book and read it because it really does give you not just a view of elites, as, as you say, but also this sense of how they fit into the broader Ottoman society of the time. So thank you very much for taking the time to talk with me and us today. Thank you, Ruben.